We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. If you would turn uh, this morning to Ezra chapter 10, Ezra chapter 10, some of you might know and uh, or have been watching along on Sunday evenings uh, where I've been primarily teaching through the book of Ezra since uh, I think late September and I had my goal, a goal in mind to uh, finish this series by the end of the year and I thought I would achieve that since we are in the last chapter but I quickly realized after uh, writing my notes and thinking on it that uh, this is definitely going to be a two-part uh, message uh, or, or time in this chapter. So we'll just get through part of it this morning, and if the Lord wills, maybe next uh, weekend uh, in the evening we'll finish it off. So uh, if you're just getting the first part, well, you'll either have to come next Sunday evening or you'll have to catch it online uh, if you, if you want to do that. It's hard to uh, give a synopsis of all of Ezra up to this point if you haven't been following along, so I'd encourage you to just uh, watch those uh, online. But simply put, uh, we see here in Ezra two returns uh, of the Israelites from Babylon to uh, back to Jerusalem, and we see the uh, we see the restoration of the sacrificial system early on in Ezra under the leadership of a man called Zerubbabel, who led the first return back. And uh, there were multiple things, progress that was made at that time, although there were also some hindrances along the way, what I might call testings of Israel's faith as uh, political interference came about and uh, local kind of skirmishes happened between the Israelites and their neighbors uh, who were not friendly uh, to the idea that the uh, Israelites wanted to kind of be uh, you know, their own people and worship at the temple exclusively and not allow others to come in and pollute the temple. Then we saw uh, most recently that Ezra, Ezra also leads a return uh, back to Jerusalem. And upon this return, he unfortunately finds that there is uh, problems going on in the camp, so to speak. Uh, you would think that having just been back in Jerusalem a short time, that the people would be walking with the Lord you know, keeping the sacrifices, being a holy nation, as they were called to be. But, you know, uh, sin doesn't wait uh, any length of time to creep in, uh, and Satan loves to attack early, and uh, that is certainly what happens here. And Ezra finds out very quickly that the people who had returned had fallen into sin, specifically the sin of intermarrying uh, foreigners, uh, whether spouse, uh, wives or husbands, and, uh, and this was prohibited by the law. So in chapter 9, then, we saw that uh, Ezra is informed of the sin. We saw that he reacts to this sin by uh, tearing his garment, by fasting, by prayer and weeping. And, uh, and the rest of Israel observes Ezra, one of the leaders, doing this, and they also react as well. And uh, we see the reaction of the people in chapter 10. And so the truth that I want to, that I believe the text is teaching us this morning is this, that sinners who fear the Lord will submit to righteous counsel and respond righteously. And we'll only look at part of that truth this morning, 
The uh, other half of that we'll look at next time, Lord willing. But keep that in mind as we look through the text this morning, that sinners who fear the Lord will submit to righteous counsel and respond righteously. As we said in chapter 9, we considered Ezra's exemplary reaction to this extensive sin problem in the Israelite community. And in direct violation of the law, the Israelites had taken pagan wives and husbands for themselves. We looked back at Deuteronomy 7 last time. Uh, You could also look at Exodus chapter 34, where it's clearly laid out that um, the Israelites were not to intermarry with foreigners. And as we noted, the prohibition against marrying a foreigner was not race discrimination. This was not that they simply, you know, because they maybe had a different color, you know, skin tone or they you know spoke a different language that they were not to intermarry them that was not the reasoning whatsoever rather it was to guard God's chosen people from the inevitable effect that these idolatrous foreigners would have on the Jews and they again remember they're not exactly like the church they are a nation a holy nation to be kept pure and so uh, God had directly prohibited them from intermarrying So upon uh, hearing how God's people had ignored God's word by marrying pagans, Ezra responds by showing great remorse over the guilt that has been brought upon Israel for their sin. And Ezra prays uh, an exemplary prayer of confession, and I encourage you to go back and read chapter 9. What an excellent example of what it looks like to have remorse, godly remorse, and then pray, pray a prayer of confession to be contrite, Uh, to not presume upon God's grace, although we know that God's grace is there for us, but to simply say, I have sinned, and I am laying my sin before you, God, and act as you will. Uh, And in this prayer, we find um, Ezra openly acknowledging Israel's sin. You know, he's candid about it. He doesn't try to paint it a nicer picture than what it is. He simply lays it out as it is. Ezra speaks of God's past judgment, God's present mercy and grace, including the fact that God has withhold, withheld punishment that they justly deserved. He says, uh, where is it? Um, verse uh, 13, uh, close, yeah, and 14. He says, and after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, um, since, you, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve, and have given us such deliverance as this, should we again break your commandments? So Ezra reflects upon the fact that God has actually withheld punishment that they deserve. And uh, isn't that true in our lives today? God laid upon uh, his son Christ the wrath that we deserved, withholding the punishment that we deserve. Praise the Lord for that. Well, chapter 9, or excuse me, 10 resumes uh, kind of where chapter 9, verse 4 leaves off with the people gathering around Ezra at the temple in Jerusalem, uh, seeing Ezra in this kind of contrite state. And they too are, uh, let's see, back in verse 4, it says, Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me, that is to Ezra, because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive. And so we see then in chapter 10 that they have gathered with uh, Ezra, those who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, 
I take that simply to mean those who fear the Lord and his word, who revere it, those who tremble at it, who, who acknowledge the significance of God's word and the uh, application of it to this specific situation. And so while Ezra was praying and weeping, a great number of men and women and children began to assemble at the temple around Ezra. And that's where the story picks up, the narrative in chapter 10. And so let me read just uh, part of this chapter and uh, listen as I read, follow along, and then we'll look at it in some detail this morning. Ezra records here in chapter 10, Now while Ezra was praying, and while he was confessing, weeping, and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel. For the people wept very bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We have, we have trespassed against our God, and have taken pagan wives from the people peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. And therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to make away, excuse me, to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them, according to the advice of my master and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leaders of the priests, the Levites, and all Israel swear an oath that they would do according to, his word, to this word. So they swore an oath. Then Ezra rose up from the, before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehon, Jehanan, the son of Elishib. And when he came there, he ate no bread and drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those from the captivity. And they issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the descendants of the captivity that they must gather at Jerusalem and that whoever would not come within three days, according to the instructions of the leaders and elders, all his property would be confiscated and he himself would be separated from the assembly of those from the captivity. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th of the month, and all the people sat in the open square of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of heavy rain. Then Ezra and the priest, the priest stood up and said to him, You have transgressed and have taken pagan wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore, make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will. Separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the pagan wives. We see uh, first that uh, sinners who fear the Lord will submit to righteous counsel, and we see this exemplified in the lives of the Israelites, that the sinning Israelites who feared the Lord submitted to righteous counsel. Uh, because of the intermarriage with foreigners, many Israelites were living in, a, in sin here, we see, as uh, Ezra points out. And Ezra, we have to remind ourselves, was a very respected leader. So it's not surprising that when they see one of their leaders crying and weeping at the temple, that it would gather a crowd. You know, what's going on here? This isn't the ordinary, you know, fellow who's, you know, just at the temple. This is their leader. And he is here weeping bitterly. His distress 
inevitably caught the attention of the people and pricked the people's consciences that there was something the matter here, something going wrong. The bitter weeping of Ezra and the people was not mere ritualism. This isn't them just acting out in kind of a ritualistic way, you know, weeping, you know, uh, as a way of kind of drawing attention to themselves. This was not a superficial kind of weeping, but a real expression that is, uh, that is a root, rooted in the inward remorse over their sin. This outward weeping is an expression of their inward remorse over their sin. I don't think they uh, had to kind of dig too far to realize why Ezra was weeping. I think there was a kind of immediate, immediate acknowledgement that this weeping is a result of the sin that they're committing. And this pricked their consciences so that they too also began to weep like their spiritual leader Ezra the biblical concept of repentance is preceded always by godly sorrow, and that's what we see here is godly sorrow. That's what the weeping uh, expression here uh, exemplifies, that there is godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7.10 talks about this, that godly sorrow leads to repentance. Of course, there's a worldly kind of sorrow that does not lead to uh, repentance, but that's not the case here. This is a true kind of repentant uh, attitude, one that is preceded by godly sorrow. Their bitter weeping and later righteous response to Ezra's counsel demonstrates that they indeed fear the Lord. And I also draw that back, uh, draw that fact from uh, chapter nine, verse four, where it says they trembled at the words of God. They feared God. They feared His word. Well, we see uh, early on in the narrative in chapter 10 that a man named Shechaniah acts as a spokesman for the people. So while Ezra is praying, while he is weeping, this man Ezra, or excuse me, Shechaniah, uh, speaks up. And he offers counsel on how the people should deal with this sin problem. Shechaniah acknowledges that, marrying, that by marrying foreign women and men, they have acted unfaithfully, in their covenant with God. Remember, this prohibition is grounded in a covenant with God and the people of Israel, that if they broke their covenant, that they would be disciplined, that they would face God's wrath. And in, in contrast, if they were to keep the covenant, covenant and be faithful to its commandments, they would be blessed. Yet, Shechaniah also believes that there is hope for Israel The sin in this sin problem. He's... Remember what he says there uh, in verse 2 at the end? It says, yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. I think Shechaniah realizes that, yes, God does punish for sin, but he also serves a merciful God who is willing to forgive if they were to repent. And God indeed could forgive them, would forgive them if they were willing to turn back to him. It's up to them now to respond accordingly, to decide whether they're going to continue to live in the sin or to repent. So Shechaniah counsels the people to make a covenant with God, and this probably amounts to more of a renewal of the covenant, not necessarily a new distinct covenant with God. They're simply renewing of the covenant that they said they would follow. The renewal of this covenant required that they put away their foreign wives and children, since this was the cause of the breaking of the covenant. 
This was the sin issue that needed to be dealt with in order to be faithful once again to the covenant. Now, to put away their wives and children meant to divorce their wives or husbands and send them away with the children. The action, of course, in our minds may seem harsh. Man, divorce these wives, divorce these husbands. And in your mind, it may even feel contrary to other scriptural teaching as you think about the whole divorce issue throughout all of scripture. But I think we can prove, and I believe in fact, that uh, this action that Shechaniah is calling for is, in fact, biblical and even necessary in this particular situation. And I'll flesh that out a little bit later on here. Shechaniah then attributes uh, his advice to the council of Ezra. And I find that very interesting. He says, uh, uh, where is it? Uh, Sorry here. Um, Let me begin in verse 3. I think it will catch my eye here. Now, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them, according, here it is, according to the advice of my master and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. Kind of like pull back for a second and say, wait a minute, I thought Shechaniah just gave the counsel, not his master and the people who are trembling. But I think what Shechaniah is doing is, one, he's acting in a state of humility. He's saying, yes, this is my counsel, but this is really just the heartbeat of Ezra and the people who are, who are gathered here together. Those present exemplified a fear of the Lord and of the law. And so when Shechaniah attributes his advice to the counsel of his master, that is Ezra, and to the people, He's simply saying, listen, this is what they desire to do already. I'm just kind of voicing it, what everyone's thinking. I'm putting it into words. And so the advice of Ezra and the people is more of an inference from their expressions of remorse and probably Ezra's prayer, which also speaks of the fact that they need to repent and turn to the Lord, and God might be merciful in that case. Shechaniah urges Ezra to take responsibility as a leader and act. We see this in verse 4 where Shechaniah speaks now directly to Ezra and he says, Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be, good, be of good courage and do it. Reminds me of uh, Joshua, who is also called to have good courage to lead the people of Israel. And now Shechaniah points to their leader and says, Take responsibility. Not because Ezra had committed this particular sin, but because he was their spiritual leader. And as is normally the case, these kinds of hard, difficult decisions uh, always fall on the leadership. And so Shechaniah points to Ezra and calls him to take responsibility. Difficult decisions are most often the responsibility of leaders, we see this, you know, in the kind of corporate world that uh, the leaders on the top have to make the difficult decision-making, you know, spend the money, uh, make the cuts, whatever the case may be. But this also applies to spiritual matters, too, in a church setting where difficult decisions must be made for the betterment of the people, the church, the flock. Of course, it is much easier to lead when the people are willing to follow, is it not? It's hard to lead when the, you know, when, the, when the people push back, when they run away, you know, the flock runs away or they scatter or they disagree. 
But in this case, there is a, a crowd that is willing to follow the spiritual counsel of their leader by submitting to his advice. And we know this because of what uh, Shechaniah says in verse 4. He says, we also are with you. Those are like, you know, those are like words, like honey, you know, to the, to the mouth, as Proverbs kind of puts it, to hear that a people are willing to follow the advice. They're with him. What a wonderful example that is. In a way, the people uh, were not only following Ezra or Shechaniah's counsel, but they're following their own counsel. What do I mean by that? Well, their own humble estate, their own contrite spirit, the fact that they were trembling at the word of God, weeping bitterly uh, because of their sin, points to the fact that they were, in a sense, counseling themselves. They were directing their heart, reorienting their heart in a proper direction. This was rooted in their knowledge of God's word and brought to their mind by the convicting work of the Spirit. Perhaps you've seen that in other people, people's lives or your own life where someone's walking in sin and then they just seem to get it. They realize the problem in their life. Or maybe you've realized the own sin issue in your life. And in a sense, you've counseled yourself, but because you know God's word and God's spirit has convicted you or they, he's convicted that other person so that they begin to almost counsel themselves through the guidance of God's spirit so that they come to an acknowledgement that you know they need to make a change of behavior or change of thinking uh, or action. And that's in a sense what's going on here Along with Ezra and Shechaniah's counsel, they're, in a sense, counseling themselves so that they come to the realization that change needs to happen. So Ezra acts first by securing the support of the people by making them take an oath. And we see this in verse 5. Ezra arose and made the leaders of the priests, the Levites, and all Israel swear an oath that they would do according to this word. So in taking an oath, they were in a sense pledging to do as they had been counseled, going under this oath saying, we will do it. Otherwise, you know, you know, the consequence isn't really shown or said, explicitly said here, but perhaps, you know, otherwise they, they know they'll face God's judgment or some kind, of, uh, uh, some kind of punishment for not fulfilling this oath. But in order to deal with the problem properly, there had to be some planning, and we find this in verses 7 and 8. The issue here is that not everyone was gathered at Jerusalem. Perhaps this is just the people who lived within the vicinity, a walking distance of Jerusalem, you know, one day's walk. But the fact is that, uh, you know, upon returning to Israel, you know, people begin to spread out further and further. You know, they want more land. They want to kind of spread out. And so uh, many of the Israelites lived uh, a three-day's journey from Jerusalem. And so, in order to deal with the problem uh, properly, uh, some planning had to go on, and so we see that the leaders of Israel call or make a proclamation, issue a proclamation throughout Judah, that uh, every man from the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, those who had returned, should come to Jerusalem. And they give them three days to make this journey. 
The whole situation, of course, would take some time. We find this later on in verse 13, that uh, this wasn't just a two- or three-day or ordeal. In fact, it took a couple months in order for all this to uh, come about, to deal with the problem properly. The sin, of course, involved many people, and not everyone was present. That's the issue here, and so they give them three days to journey. And uh, we find that anyone who refused to come would have their land confiscated, and he would be separated from the assembly. So really, this is the the punishment here, if they were not to heed the word. The term uh, forfeit refers to putting something under the ban. Maybe you've heard that terminology before. Maybe it's kind of new. In Hebrew terminology, anything under the ban would be devoted to the Lord, either by destruction, in the sense that God would uh, destroy them, or it would be devoted to the Lord in the sense of giving it to the temple treasury. So they would forfeit uh, their land or their, you know, their possessions, and it would be used for more holy purposes uh, in the temple. And so this warning then emphasizes the seriousness of the sin and the unique consequences of failing to follow uh, uh, the instruction being given. So after three days, then, the people gather to the temple square where Ezra would address the sin issue corporately in a very candid kind of way. What Ezra says here to the people is righteous counsel. It's righteous because it's grounded in God's word, and it's, uh, it's given in a way that is uh, in accordance with the law. Look with me uh, at verse 10. It says, then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have transgressed. That's kind of a very candid way, right? You know, not mincing words. You have sinned, Israel. And this is how they have transgressed. They have taken pagan wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Ezra lays it out. Very plainly. Sometimes we need that, don't we? You know, we like to mince words, especially when someone's walking in sin. You know, we, it's hard to directly address them. You know, we feel that maybe we're not in the position to do that. Uh, perhaps we just simply know it's going to be a tough conversation to have, you know, whether it be with another brother or sister, perhaps a spouse, a child, a parent. But Ezra doesn't mince words. He's not harsh about it, but he simply states the fact You have sinned, and this is how you have sinned. And sometimes we need that, and others need that kind of candid expression. Ezra began his address by giving attention to their sin of intermarriage and the guilt this imputed to Israel as a nation. Not just individually, but remember, think of them as a nation, a holy people. They had imputed guilt to all of Israel, piling up and up and up the guilt And back, if we look at Ezra's prayer, you know, Ezra kind of candidly says, you know, how long is God going to be merciful? We're piling up this guilt. Will he be merciful another day, or will he simply, you know, destroy us, remove us again from the land? Ezra then calls them to confess their sin to God and to do his will. In verse 11, he says, Now therefore make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will. Will. What is confession? 
What is confession? Confession is acknowledging your sin before the Lord, saying, I, I recognize your perfect and holy standard and that I have fallen short of that. I have my pattern of behavior or thought is in disagreement, discord with God's perfect and holy standard. That's what it means to confess sin. What does it mean to do his will? It means to obey, right? To repent, if that's necessary, and to, to, do his, to do his will, to obey his commands. So confession is acknowledging your sin before the Lord while doing his will is turning from your sin and in turn obeying his commands. This is, again, the biblical concept of repentance. It's turning from sin and turning to his commands, obeying his, his word, doing his will. This is a very biblical pattern for us to follow when it comes to confronting a brother in sin. Call out the sin, confront the sin, call them to confession and to repentance. Of course, we have also the example in Matthew 18 of you know, how to address sin in, the, in a church, uh, church discipline. But this, too, I think really you know, accords with that passage in Matthew that we are to confront the sin and to call them to repentance. In this particular situation, in order to do his will, it would require that the Israelites divorce their pagan wives and husbands. So I want to come now to the point of whether or not this is a biblical action that Ezra is calling for. Because this you know, idea of divorce is obviously you know, debated, and it's often misunderstood in the Bible. And it seems here, in light of what we know of the rest of Scripture, that this is a very harsh thing that Ezra is calling for. And perhaps even, you know, not a good example, some might surmise or deduce from this. But I think that uh, we can prove otherwise, that this in- indeed was a biblical command and necessary in this particular situation. And I emphasize that last kind of phrase there, in this particular situation, let me show you why uh, from God's word. So simply answering the question, was Ezra's command to divorce biblical? Well, Ezra knew that marriage was instituted by God. I think he knew the Old Testament scriptures. He was familiar with it. And he considered the fact that marriage is permanent in an exclu- and, uh, and exclusive relationship. We find this from Genesis 2.24. And uh, that's quoted in Matthew 19.5 and Ephesians 5.31. And so Ezra's not... Ignorant of this fact, uh, Malachi chapter 2, verse 16 says that God hates divorce. In fact, uh, Malachi may have preached about Ezra's time or just before, and so Ezra was surely familiar with his teaching on divorce. And much of the biblical ethics, uh, much of biblical ethics has to do with the sanctity of the marriage relationship. And so Ezra is not ignorant of this. He knows the Old Testament. He knows at least Genesis 2.24, if not uh, what Malachi says about hating divorce in chapter 2, verse 16. He's also familiar with Deuteronomy 24, verse 2, uh, which prescribes the legal grounds for divorce in normal circumstances. And what I want to make the case here is that this is not normal circumstances in light of uh, what we know from Deuteronomy 24.2. In Deuteronomy 24, uh, the legal grounds for divorce is describing divorce between members of the Jewish community, between a, a Jewish man and a Jewish woman. 
not a, you know, a Jewish man and a pagan woman or a, you know, uh, you know, the other way around vis-a-vis, but, uh, but simply a Jewish man and a Jewish woman. Ezra 10, in contrast, addresses intermarriage of a Jewish man or woman with a pagan man or woman. And, uh, we know that uh, from Deuteronomy 7 and Exodus 34 that such marriages are contrary to the law, or more simply put, it's unlawful, it's illegal in this kind of uh, national uh, kind of organization that uh, the Israelites are in, where there is a, uh, a civic law, you know, specific laws that governed the nation. And so... Uh, in this sense, then, these kinds of marriages were unlawful. They were illegal. The marriages in Ezra 10 were unlawful or Ill- illegitimate marriages from the, from the outset. Thus, the sending away of the women uh, is to guard the exiles against the continuation of an illegal act. So this is really a distinct and kind of specific situation here. Uh, you really can't draw from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 24, because that's not talking about marriages between foreigners and Israelites. It's talking about simply marriages between uh, uh, two Jewish people. This then is what makes Ezra's command not only permissible, but necessary to restore faithfulness to the covenant. They could not continue in these marriages and be faithful to the covenant. And so divorce uh, had to happen. And from the beginning, as we said, these, these marriages from the outset were unlawful. And so they had, to be, uh, they had to be put away. Now, you may then ask, you know, how does the divorce issue in Ezra 10, 10 relate to Christians uh, today? Christians with unbelieving spouses, for example. Well, first, these chapters in Ezra 10 are what I would call descriptive, not prescriptive. You know the difference between that description, description, simply just describing how things happened, not necessarily saying whether they were right or wrong, but just simply describing. Uh, scripture is full of you know these kinds of descriptive language. At other times, there is prescriptive language, commands, prohibitions, things that we are to follow, certain you know necessary uh, commands in that sense. And that is not what Ezra ten is. It is simply a description. It is not prescribing any certain kind of particular action for the New Testament believer today. It is describing the case, the particular situation that happened at that time. Ezra 10 also addresses a specific situation that was unique to Israel as a nation in their covenant with God. We said that already. They cannot be taken, uh, this example cannot be taken as authorization for divorcing an unbelieving spouse. Why do I say that? Well, what, what do you know from 1 Corinthians chapter 7? In second, or 1 Corinthians 7, 12 to 16, Paul exhorts one who has an unbelieving partner not to divorce. He explicitly says, do not divorce them. But if the unbelieving partner leaves, we find uh, in 1 Corinthians 7, the believer is not bound in such circumstances. Also, because Christianity is entered into by spiritual birth, so the same kind of ethnic national restraints cannot be enforced on the church, uh, which is a different sort of thing. 
What do I mean by that? Well, when we become a Christian, you know, we're not, we don't become a Jew, for one, and we're not brought into a kind of national ethnic uh, kind of entity. That was Israel. That is Israel. When we are born again spiritually, we are, bought, we are put into the body of Christ, which is a spiritual body, not an ethnic, not a national kind of uh, body like Israel. And so it functions differently from the very outset. Gentiles are not people of God by virtue of physical birth, like Israelites were. We are not simply bound by the law of Moses. Romans 7 teaches us that. And so that alone really says that we can't make this a prescription for New Testament believers today uh, because we're not under the law anymore. Uh, Passages like 1 Corinthians 7 govern uh, our understanding of marriage and divorce uh, as well as other passages we find in the New Testament. So that's my simple cut at it. Of course, you know, there's more to be spoken about on that topic if you're interested. Uh, It's about talking about that in more detail. I'd be happy to do that. I want to just conclude in the last two or three minutes here with some application for us then today. And I simply draw this uh, kind of connection between what happened with the Israelites in Ezra 10 and with us today in that we too are sinners today, are we not? And so in really kind of direct relation, sinners who fear the Lord will submit to righteous counsel today as well. Sinners who fear the Lord will submit to righteous counsel as well, whether that be you or I or a brother and sister in Christ. We just noted that the specific situation in Ezra 10 is unique, but the principle behind that situation is timeless. We follow the example of the Israelites in that uh, we who sin but also fear the Lord will submit to righteous counsel. Maybe from the very beginning you've kind of thought about that sentence and it seems somewhat contradictory. You know, sinners who fear the Lord. Doesn't it seem kind of contrasting? But uh, are we not still sinners today? Yet, I think if you're a believer today, you can say, or you at least desire to say, that I fear the Lord. But I know I still sin. And so we find ourselves in this kind of uh, you know, tension that, yes, we sin, but we do fear the Lord. And so sinners who fear the Lord will submit to righteous counsel. Unrepentant sinners will not, because they are not fearing the Lord. But those who fear the Lord will submit to righteous counsel. You know, most of the the epistles in the New Testament are written to address a particular problem in a church or sometimes multiple issues in a church. In some, then, in some we could say the content of these epistles is righteous counsel because it's divine counsel, is it not? God's word. And it's for the purpose of doctrine, for reproof, for correction, like in Ezra 10, for instruction in righteousness. You know where I'm going, the verse I'm quoting there, paraphrasing. The recipients of these epistles were sinners as well. And under the superintending work of the Spirit, the apostles were continuously writing to address doctrinal and conduct problems, somewhat like the situation in Ezra 10, where there was issues of conduct and uh, issues of sin. And so today, the New Testament uh, and the Old Testament is an instruction book to help us live righteously as a believer. And so that is, you know, the kind of righteous counsel that we have for ourselves today. 
And just as God used Shechaniah and Ezra to impart righteous counsel to sinning Israelites, God also uses people, other believers, to impart righteous counsel when you or I are in sin. Perhaps there's been a Ezra or Shechaniah in your life who has imparted righteous counsel to you, has shown how you have perhaps gone off course a bit. And they've come to you, and they've addressed you, and they've said, you know, confess this sin. I see this sin. I see this issue. Turn back to the Lord. God uses these people in our lives to impart righteous counsel. That may be your pastor, a brother or sister in Christ. He may use your spouse. You know, God forbid he use your spouse to correct you. But he does do that. You know, he may even use your own child to direct you back to the Lord. He can do that. He can choose to use someone like that in your life to confront sin in your life. And you know what? You had better commit, uh, submit if indeed they have identified some sin. Humble yourself. If it's your spouse or even your child and say, yes, you're right, honey. You're right, son, daughter. That is an area that I need to work on. Submit to righteous counsel wherever it originates from, whoever it originates from, as long as, of course, it's grounded in, in God's word. You know, Ezra wept bitterly because of Israel's sin. Have you ever thought of who you might be grieving in your life because of unconfessed sin, unrepentance, ongoing sin patterns that you're just not willing to give up? Don't be like that. Be like the Israelites who wept along with Ezra, who submitted to righteous counsel course you're not only grieving maybe a spouse or a a parent or even your own child or your pastor or your brother and sister in Christ of course ultimately you're grieving the Lord but of course your sin may have real consequences for others perhaps you're not only grieving them in their heart but you're making their life even more difficult because of unconfessed sin it's likely a very great burden to them And so consider the example of the Israelites as we looked at the first half of chapter 10, learning that sinners who fear the Lord will submit to righteous counsel. Tremble like the Israelites. Have your consciences pricked this morning even in whatever area that needs to happen and submit to God's word, submit to those who want to see you grow in faith in the knowledge and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray that we uh, might respond as the Israelites did, that they, in contrite spirit, with great remorse, recognizing that they were sinners, Lord, they submitted to righteous counsel. May that be our heart attitude this morning. Perhaps we know someone in our life that needs to have that kind of spirit May we have the boldness like Ezra to confront them in love and kindness, of course, but in truth. Perhaps not mincing words, but being direct like Ezra was, simply identifying the sin, calling it out, and calling them to confess. Lord, maybe you would be pleased to use us 
Maybe you'd be pleased to use someone else in our life in an area that we need that even here today. May we be humble and fear the Lord, tremble at his word. Uh, Today, even, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.